What I learned was looking in the usual places was only bringing me the usual answers, right? So one needed to dig in those other places. You couldn't just look up suffrage in a card catalog because you were only going to get the mainstream narrative. African-American women have such a strong history of organization that it was just a message that was being lost in the broader suffrage narrative. That is Amanda C. Burden, curator of the Brandywine River Museum and its current exhibition, Votes for Women, A Visual History. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which gave women access to the vote. But that's a bit of a misstatement because nobody gave these women anything. They fought long and hard for 72 years and won that political struggle for the majority of women in the United States. Votes for Women shines a spotlight on that movement with over 200 objects, including drawings, illustrations, and posters from museums, historical societies, and private collections, and examples of the clothing and sashes worn by suffragists. The result is an immersion in the breadth and depth of the movement and a visualization of the complex political messages conveyed by the suffragists. It's clear what they sacrificed by demanding the vote so relentlessly. And it's equally clear how fiercely men guarded that privilege for themselves. Votes for Women works against what had been a dominant narrative that the suffrage movement was mainly white. It recognizes both the critical efforts of women of color and their community networks and the inability of the 19th Amendment to guarantee access to the ballot for women of color, primarily but not exclusively in the Jim Crow South. An exhibit with this historical breadth was obviously a big undertaking. So when I spoke with curator Amanda Burden, I was curious how she got her arms around it and why she chose as her focus a visual history of the suffrage movement. As an art historian and working as a curator in an art museum, much of what I do every day is involved with how people process their world and the arts of the past through visual material. And so we've long been working on teaching visual literacy and visual communication with works of art. And it just seemed to me that the storytelling that works of art or that the visual world and visual culture could bring were absolutely used by especially the late phases of the American suffrage movement and their visual material that got left behind in the history hasn't much been dealt with or treated yet. The suffrage movement went on for 72 years and you focus primarily on the 20th century. Is that because there was such an array of visual material to work with? Yes, yes. And, and there are a couple of different reasons for this. One is that printing technologies were much improved by the early 20th century and allowed for cheaper, easier, faster color printing so that these brochures and flyers and handbills could all be distributed. But then also it's because I believe a younger generation of suffragists, Alice Paul and her, her generation had joined 
And they were really skilled at the visual marketing or the promotion of suffrage, not just through speeches and literature, but through what we talk about in the exhibition is the spectacle of suffrage, what it looked like and how that could be impacted in the overall suffrage fight. I love the idea of the spectacle of suffrage because a great part of that campaign was making themselves and their goal visible. And to be visible as a woman back then was quite radical thinking. Absolutely. And I I think about this in a lot of ways. The lessons learned from the suffrage movement really apply to all kinds of social activism. It's when anyone feels invisible in their world and society and culture that lots of things are done to make themselves, make their voices heard is something we often say, or make themselves visible. And so this first generation of really uh, visual material in the suffrage movement was making the invisible woman feel more visible and be literally visible to culture. You wrote that at that time, women were supposed to be in the newspaper twice, when they're married and when they die. That's right. Yeah. And here women are putting themselves forward and very ferociously. Yeah. And that was one of the key anti-suffrage arguments, actually, is that women should not be heard, should not be seen. They shouldn't be on a public stage and subject themselves to public scrutiny. And so everything that the suffrage movement was working on was against that ideal. Well, they were certainly ridiculed by many cartoonists, and one of them, Joseph Kepler, puts in one large cartoon that contained many images the fears that men had about women voting. Can you describe that cartoon? Yes. So the Joseph Kepler piece you're talking about is actually from Puck magazine, and that was the leading humor magazine of the day. So you have to understand the context was to make people laugh and point out these comical aspects of society, not really to make deep political statements. However, one particular illustration has a central image and then is surrounded by vignettes that really offer the reasons, comically, why women should not be allowed to vote. And one of the primary concerns is how the American household would fall apart if women turned their attention to what was called electioneering, you know, being out in public, working for a political candidate, for God's sakes, even running for political office, maybe. (laughs) I know, clutch your pearls. Um, But, you know, in the cartoon, women are depicted as very manly. They're wearing suits. They're growing beards with whisker grease. And, you know, the, the idea that the family was in peril is communicated by this. And that is a key key argument throughout, there's an illustrator in the exhibition, Rose O'Neill, who really takes as her focus, explaining visually why women who want to have better family dynamics and safer, healthier environments for their children should have the right to vote. It's like she's taking Kepler on directly because in that big cartoon, in one of the vignettes, you have the unenfranchised woman And he creates this scene of domestic bliss from a male perspective in any case. And they're seated at the table and the husband is reading the newspaper while she's beautifully dressed and bouncing this well-behaved child on her knee. And then there's another panel that shows what happens 
if women get the vote and the woman is out of the house, the man is trying to deal with six kids who are misbehaving and it's chaos, complete chaos. I know. And I particularly love that the uh, caption for that domestic idol that you mentioned is called Nevermore. So it's something that is now in the region of, I don't know, science fiction. (laughs) Well, as, as you've said, the suffragists laid the foundation for social change movements in the 20th century. And we probably see this most clearly in the section of the exhibition called Deeds, Not Words. Yes. And the parade of 1913 is featured prominently here. And I'd like you to explain its significance. Yes. So the parade of 1913 is uh, an amazingly visible political event that women, particularly the National Woman's Party, Alice Paul, Lucy Byrne, and that group organized in 1913 to coincide with the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson. And so in 1913, when they organized this, other than demonstrations of um, some labor groups, this was really the very first socially motivated parade of this sort to take place on such a, a public and national scale. The women took their place, marching down Pennsylvania Avenue especially, to draw attention from this big crowd that would have been there to see the inauguration and to make their cause known. Now, of course, as you learn in the exhibition or if you read histories, the parade was overtaken by an angry mob who was just rioting around them and women were injured, they were spat upon, they were called names. The whole thing sort of fell apart before they could reach their final conclusion at the end of the march. And they turned this tragedy into a triumph, let's say, because Alice Paul, with this marketing genius that she had, decided that all these women who had just experienced firsthand the violence against women, men who were vehemently opposed to women's suffrage, with lots of news photography going on at the same time, would take the time to write letters at the end of the parade. She gathered them together and she charged them with writing letters home to their own hometown newspapers so that the the story of what had happened there in Washington, D.C. would make headlines and would come across countrywide. Um, so that parade was a, started out as a celebration, started out as as looking for this attention to the cause and really got out of control in the midst of it, but then came around to be such a powerful attention getter and statement on behalf of the women who were only asking for their rights as citizens. Well, the other thing that became very apparent during the parade is the segregation within the suffrage movement. I mean, it was apparent before then, but here we have the physical manifestations of that. Most particularly, I'm thinking of Ida Wells Barnett, for example, who wanted to march with the Illinois contingent. And then what happened? Well, she was told that she could not. Um, The organizers of the parade said that they would not host an integrated parade and that she would need to march with an African-American group. And she would not have that. She, she chose instead, and she stepped right off into the midst of the parade and joined her, her fellow suffragists from Illinois, um, where she was living at the time. And there's a photograph 
that was published in the Chicago Tribune of Ida B. Wells standing with the Illinois delegation. And that's such a historic document that has literally been lost over time. We have the newspaper and the reprint, but the original photograph can't be found. Mm, But it is a famous photo. Absolutely. And among the groups marching in that parade was the sorority Delta Sigma Theta. Yes, Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And this is something that I learned about. I was I was not a part of any Greek organization in my life. I, I didn't know much about it except for um, in the past few years, realizing how integral the sororities and fraternities were in celebrations of Juneteenth. And so black sororities were one of the places that I looked for information and for research materials. And of course, it didn't take long to figure out that Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated was there from the beginning. They were a Howard University organization that was the second African-American sorority in the country. They had actually peeled off from the another sorority because they wanted to be more socially involved. And their very first event that they held as a group was to go to this march in Washington, D.C., and march with other college organizations as Howard University's Delta Sigma Theta group. And so I've traced a little bit of the histories of some of the women in that group. And it's not a hidden history. Members of Delta Sigma Theta sorority all know these women's names, but it's it's not mainstream history yet. Well, that's exactly where I want to go. Because of segregation, because suffragists did not want to bring race into the conversation about women's suffrage, There's often a misconception that Black women and women of color were not involved with the fight for the vote. Absolutely. And that is couldn't be further from the truth. It's one of the reasons why when people were criticizing five, six years ago, this upcoming celebration of the suffrage centennial was because it wasn't, as people have come to know the movement, it wasn't inclusive. It was not representative of all women. And it's easily easy to misconceive the movement as something that was only undertaken by white women, white middle-class women more specifically. But once you do delve into the history, there are so many different women from different backgrounds, different races, different income levels, different classes that are involved each in their own way. And it's about the history that has been written and been pushed forth that really colors it as an all-white movement. And so adding the stories of Delta Sigma Theta and of the 1913 March, you know, Mary Church Terrell, who was also incredibly important as an African-American organizer, was writing in support of the Delta Sigma Theta group and helped to make their appearance there possible to convince the organizers that this would be good for the movement. Well, Mary Church Terrell did so much in her life, a charter member of the NAACP. She was the founder of the National Association of Colored Women. And she was also instrumental in beginning the club movement, civic-minded Black women's clubs. And the clubs were instrumental in the suffrage movement. Absolutely. It's one of the things that that I learned, you know, I'm an art historian doing a little more history than I usually do with this project. 
But what I learned was looking in the usual places was only bringing me the usual answers, right? So one needed to dig in those other places. You couldn't just look up suffrage in a card catalog because you were only going to get the mainstream narrative. But once I realized that I should be looking for these branches of the National Association of Colored Women, I should be looking for religious organizations, I should be looking for fraternities and sororities. I should be looking for other social and benevolent organizations that were organizing women, African-American women, have such a strong history of organization that it was just a message that was being lost in the broader suffrage narrative. Well, you had a mural commissioned for this exhibition called Hidden Figures of the Suffrage Movement. Can you share what your thinking was about this and and how you chose the women who would be depicted on your walls? Sure, that that mural um, was partly the offshoot of the idea that we had a lack, I in my exhibition, I think historically in general, had a lack of the visual material that related to women of color, that related to, let's say, other marginalized groups, because we do include working class women in this as well the physical visual documents that I was seeing elsewhere, you know, the the newspaper services that were photographing white women marching in their towns and cities across the country weren't photographing Hispanic women asking for the vote in Texas. You know, they weren't out there documenting that. But the wall that or the mural that we commissioned, I wanted to supplement the visual history that was lacking by asking five illustrators, five women illustrators of very diverse backgrounds, experiences, ages, to help contribute and visualize for contemporary audiences and make these faces familiar in the way that some of the other images of suffrage were familiar. So the process had to do with selecting, oh my goodness, selecting just 14 that we could fit on the wall. But I had a a summer research associate who helped with this project, and she started with Rosalind Turberg Penn's book, which is a history of African-American women suffragists. That was from the 1970s, I believe. So we started reading these hundreds, hundred or so biographies of African-American women and trying to select. So our selections kind of ranged. We wanted local stories, we wanted national stories, and even an international story or two to help explain that it wasn't just in one town or it wasn't just urban women or something like that that were involved. So I wanted to get a broad range. Well, I'd like to talk about some of the women in the mural specifically. Let's begin with Alice Dunbar-Nelson. She is one of my my most exciting discoveries for me. Now, other historians who've, historians of this period who are literary historians, they will have known Alice Dunbar Nelson's name. But I was introduced to her and I learned that the University of Delaware, which is very nearby to our museum, had a collection of Alice Dunbar Nelson's papers. And I went to the archives to see them firsthand. And one of the scrapbooks. And scrapbooks are such an important visual record that women left behind of their own lives, of their own causes. So to have a suffrage scrapbook by Alice Dunbar Nelson, where she collected these visual documents of her involvement with the suffrage movement was spectacular. It's the first place, it's the only place I've seen firsthand and been able to lay my hands on 
uh, handbills that were directed at the African-American community, inviting women to come to a rally or a lecture or to hear a speaker and use some images like Abraham Lincoln and the log cabin to entice an African-American audience to pay more attention to the suffrage movement. Well, speaking of that, what about Lottie Wilson? Lottie Wilson is a, is a personal favorite because she is an, a visual artist. And while so many of the other women on this mural or in the history of suffrage are renowned for or many different things, because we're an art museum and I study American women artists, this was just a triumph to find not only that Lottie Wilson existed, she was the very first African-American student at the Art Institute of Chicago. And she made a career of portrait painting well before any African-American women had really made a name for themselves in the United States in the field of visual arts. And Lottie Wilson, Charlotte or Lottie as she's called, was also a very active suffragist. You know, she attended suffrage meetings. She argued in favor of African-American women with Susan B. Anthony about issues of race, like African-American women being able to take a seat on trains and not having segregated, segregated train service. But she was also an artist. And one of the great paintings that she did in her life was an image of Abraham Lincoln and Sojourner Truth. And it was displayed in Theodore Roosevelt's White House. So the, the administration just before Woodrow Wilson. So she was out there on the forefront before, you know, before the Wilson campaign, before the, the 1913 March. And she used her voice and her artwork to lift up African-American figures and, and women. And, and suffrage was one of the main reasons why she is now in the Michigan Woman's Hall of Fame. There's also a Native American woman from the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Nation, Marie Louise Batineau Baldwin. And she was a revelation to me. Yes, you know, I was so surprised that she worked for the government she was the first woman of color to graduate as an attorney from the Washington College of Law in 1913. That put her right in Washington, D.C. in 1913 during that parade period. And she specifically chose to wear her native dress for her government photographs, for her government ID photographs. So she's not someone that was in any way downplaying her native heritage, her indigenous status. And like many um, Native American women who were involved in the suffrage movement, there was that dual problem of wanting to exercise their right to vote, but also that problem of citizenship, which had not been granted to all Native Americans. And so when, when white women, for instance, were saying that it was their right as a citizen, Native Americans were still aiming to get that citizenship in order to be able to vote. So she was selected again by Theodore Roosevelt as a clerk in the Office of Indian Affairs. So she was, like some of the African-American women we talked about, already deeply involved in the organization of women and of her fellow Native Americans that just flowed naturally into the suffrage movement. You know, I'm really curious about how as more and more we understand that we need to see a fuller picture of history, 
a more inclusive picture of history, that indeed there are benefits to inclusion for all of us, whether administrators, curators, academics are changing the research practices so we can actually uncover these untold stories. Absolutely. Because I was so surprised by the ways I was change, using and changing my research practices, I did um, a three-part lecture, um, which we put online, that showed the various websites and resources that I turned to and the kinds of collections that were useful for this sort of research, for suffrage research, as opposed to, you know, in my field, more traditional art historical research. And I mean, this is all happening today, of course, but I feel really strongly that digitization of these documents that are that are so rare, that they're so rarely seen, that people don't know about, that you search for, and because of the way they're categorized or cataloged, you don't find them. This whole field of, I just heard a program where, in which they were talking about the hope for history. And there is all sorts of hope for history now because we realize it was a very narrow view of history that has been thus recorded and, and discussed and considered. So as we become more inclusive and include documents and people that had not been included, every field in history, suffrage included, is growing and expanding in really contemporary ways. I want to return to Alice Paul for a moment, because as you noted, she was somebody who understood the power of media. And so she was really good about producing powerful images and creating visual events. And one was the Silent Sentinels. And I'd really like you to tell us that story. Yes, the Silent Sentinels is so powerful and moving. And especially in the summer of 2020 here, there are so many more parallels than there were as I was planning this exhibition. So the Silent Sentinel protest or demonstration was devised by the National Women's Party led by Alice Paul in 1917. It was a, a specific protest to the president, Woodrow Wilson at the time, by then he's in his second term. And it was to have women march daily from the headquarters of the National Women's Party to the White House and stand silently. You know, that's a key. They were silent. They weren't shouting. They weren't making speeches. They just held signs that asked the president to consider women's suffrage, to really think about how he was dealing with democracy overseas during World War I, and think about how democracy at home was really playing out. And so women stood all day long, mostly six days a week, for more than a year in front of the White House with these signs. And it wasn't just to Woodrow Wilson, it was signs asking, what will you do for women's suffrage that could be seen by anyone who came to visit the president? And it I, wasn't- I just want a moment, mm -hmm. I just, just a pause, mm -hmm. because the fact that this continued for over a year mm -hmm. is extraordinary. And they were working very hard to get the, the protest staffed there would be days like Pennsylvania Day or College Women's Day. Mary Church Terrell and her daughter protested in front of the White House. There is a long list of names who were involved in this. 
And it was really the most radical thing that could be done because their patriotism was called into question because they were protesting the American president under the conditions of World War I. And as this became more of an irritant to the president and to the administration, it was determined that they had to be forced to stop, but they were literally doing nothing wrong. Um, so the charges that were brought against them when the police broke up their demonstration was obstructing traffic or obstructing the sidewalk. And these women became political prisoners then. They were literally jailed for their political beliefs that women should have the right to vote. And Alice Paul was the leader in that because she and her cohort, Lucy Burns, had been part of the British suffrage movement, which had done also radical things, even more militant than the United States. And they had been jailed in England. So they sort of knew the playbook on political prisoners, right? They knew that they needed to go to jail rather than paying their fines. They knew they needed to continue to agitate from the jailhouse. They held hunger strikes. And information was channeled outwards to the press. Little notes were slipped out about the conditions. I don't mean to interrupt, but women who went on hunger strikes were then forced fed. Yes. And force feeding is we're talking about funnels and rubber hoses and raw eggs being forced down throat or through the nose as Lucy Burns was fed. And so it was it was literal torture. But in the end, the public pressure really uh, caused Wilson to release these women from jail. They continued protesting then, too. It went on. But really, it was just a few months after the release from prison of those silent sentinel protesters that Wilson made his first public statement on suffrage. So it, the public pressure brought on by this media campaign really forced the president to do something, to make some movement. He had been silent up until then. You said in one of the videos that one can find online about the exhibition that you loved maps, and, and so do I. And <laughs> by looking at these maps, one of the things that I really learned this year is how many millions of women had access to the ballot before the 19th Amendment. Yes, and how women of the West were enfranchised far before the women of the East. Wyoming was the first. Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, California, these women all had the vote earlier than women, say, in, in Pennsylvania or New York. And so that just is an incredible problem of equity. On top of it, if, if women of Wyoming are allowed to vote, why am I not allowed to vote? And I think maps do a great service to understanding the movement, the literal passage through the country of both the suffrage campaign and then later the suffrage, suffrage amendment fight also use those same maps to convey the number of states needed or left to pass the 19th Amendment. So the maps also have a way of reminding us just how big this country is to think about a campaign being waged thousands of miles across the country all by a central organization starting in the 19th century. I, I mean, it's just amazing. And the women that went on these campaigns, they're driving their own cars across a country that has no road system yet. So the maps play in the transmission of the suffrage movement as well as that ever important tally of suffrage states.
And conversely, the maps also really indicate how after the 19th Amendment, millions of women were still unable to vote. Women of color certainly won access to the ballot box in a very piecemeal way. Mm -hmm. And you explore part of that story in a sister exhibition Mm -hmm. um, called Witness to History. Tell us what we would see in that exhibit. Witness to History is a group of 55 photographs taken by a college student um, named Stephen Summerstein on March 25th, 1965. And that's an important date in history because it was the final day of the Selma to Montgomery marches in Alabama. It was the day that that march, which had tried three times to reach the state capitol, finally made its way to completion. And the, the whole point of that march, of that campaign, of those photographs, is to agitate for the vote for African-Americans in the South, African-Americans across the country, but particularly in the Jim Crow South, where restrictions like poll taxes and registration obstruction had been and were going on. So this march was really in support of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and it, it actually passed through Congress during this period in March of 1965 that these marches were taking place. So on that final day, these photographs by a college student who had come from the City University in New York, down on a bus when Dr. King had called for leaders, for participants, whether it was clerical leaders or students, to come from all over the country. And a group from City College went down, and Stephen Summerstein was covering it for his school newspaper. And he printed several of the images in the next week's paper about the march and the students who had been there. And then he put them away for decades, 50 years. And while there are photographs of that march and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had their own photographers there, these were new photographs, really, that hadn't been seen. So it just seemed absolutely imperative to not end the suffrage story with 1920 and the 19th Amendment, but that it had to shed light on the way that the 19th and the 15th Amendment didn't really get the vote to everyone in this country in the way that you know had been envisioned. So it was very important to me to have some kind of companion exhibition that would let viewers know that this struggle did not end in 1920. How does one exhibition add to our understanding of the other? Between the two exhibitions, what I learned looking at these images was just how young this movement was. Alice Paul is 24 or 25. John Lewis is 24 or 25. It is a youth movement in each of these cases. And, and I wasn't expecting that. In fact, I was sort of expecting some of the visual imagery of the women's suffrage movement to be driven by the images of the esteemed foremothers of the movement. And they're certainly there. But when you see the photographs, you realize they're just, they're babies. And, and I hoped, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-George uh, Floyd, when we were putting this together, I had hoped that this would be catalytic to have younger people realize how important they are in social and political movements, even if all they do is vote. That's something huge. And finally, Amanda, what surprised you in putting this together? I think the surprises for me, the 
depth of the material that just hasn't been completely tapped into yet. So as a researcher and as a historian, I'm learning even even after the exhibition is up of, of local historical societies or cemeteries of African-American figures that have preserved stories that are just waiting to be told. You know, we have by no means uh, exhausted the history of the suffrage movement and the history of voting rights. This history is wide open. Amanda, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you for giving me your time. Great to talk to you. That was Amanda C. Burden, curator of the Brandywine River Museum and its exhibition, Votes for Women, A Visual History. The Brandywine River Museum is open, and it also continues its robust online offerings. The Votes for Women exhibition continues until September 27th, and the companion exhibition, Witness to History, runs until November 1st, with continuing programming around both of these exhibits. You can check it all out at brandywine.org museum. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Don't forget to subscribe to Artworks and then leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. And follow us on Twitter at NEA Arts. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Stay safe and thanks for listening. <laughs>